You are listening to The Tish with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Michael Knopf, please visit MikeKnopf.com. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. In... 586 BCE, I'll actually go back a little bit before then, Um, if you remember that uh, following the reign of King Solomon, uh, the the people of Israel were split into two kingdoms, a kingdom in the north called Israel and a kingdom in the south called Judah. Uh, The capital of uh, Judah was Jerusalem. Uh, In Jerusalem was uh, the temple, which was the central religious shrine of, uh, of, of the uh, Israelite people at the time, including those who remained loyal to um, the, the old-time religion in the north, also saw the, the temple in the south as the central religious uh, um, uh, location, the, the center of the, uh, of the cult, the locus of, uh, of, of religious activity. Uh, it was certainly the case for the people of Judah in the south that uh, the, the, the temple and therefore the priesthood were the seat of uh, religious authority. The north, um, especially if you look at the perspective of the north in the, uh, in the Tanakh, in the Bible, um, the people of the north uh, struggled very mightily with their conne- connection and relationship to uh, monotheism in general, but, uh, but especially to the um, Israelite monotheism, which had um, the god uh, that uh, the, the um, Jewish tradition believes has an ineffable name, yud Vavhe, vav uh, which historians usually um, mistranslate, mispronounces as Yahweh. So, you know, the, the term Jehovah comes from that, too. Um, for, because we're historians here, because of this historical perspective, I'll use that historian's term of Yahweh referring to the God of Israel, even though, as a rabbi, um, that's not really how I like referring to uh, the God of Israel. But anyway, uh, so the people of the North were uh, tended to be uh, um, uh, not particularly interested in, uh, in, in that old-time Israelite religion um, of, uh, of worshiping Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Uh, and uh, um, which the the uh, the biblical account rails against them for, um, uh, but it's really in some ways no matter because in 722 uh, BCE the Assyrians uh, uh, conquer the northern kingdom of Israel um, and uh, and disperse the population. Some of the population gets killed, some of the population gets enslaved, some of the population just sort of, you know, willfully blends into uh, the, uh, the Assyrian uh, dominance. Um, uh, very soon after that, um, the, uh, the Assyrian uh, Empire was conquered by the Babylonian Empire, uh, and so uh, it had a, uh, essentially a, a very uh, growing powerful foreign entity um, on the border of Judah. Eventually that uh, foreign entity became uh, too strong for, uh, for even the Judite kingdom to, to uh, withstand. Uh, the Judites uh, were, for the most part, at least according to the biblical account, loyal to uh, the God of Israel, loyal to the, the temple cult. Um, uh, not necessarily, according to the prophets in the Bible, uh, not necessarily good or nice people all the time, but at the very least they were, they were loyal to the temple. But in any event, in 586 BCE, the Babylonians uh, complete their um, uh, conquest of Judah and destroy Jerusalem, destroy the temple. Uh, when they do that, uh, several things happen. Similar to what happened with the northern uh, tribes of Israel, uh, uh, is that uh, some of the population uh, was, uh, was, was massacred, 
some of the population was uh, um, was left in place as a, as a, a vassal population for uh, Babylonia. Um, and a, a portion of the population, and there are varying accounts of uh, what exact proportion of the population this is, but a portion of the population, probably about um, uh, 75,000 people, were, um, were exiled to Babylonia. Uh, those exiles primarily consisted of uh, the monarchy and its family, um, which <coughs> was more or less the... Um, the, the line dating back to King David. Um, so the monarchy and its family, its extended family, um, the royal courtiers and guards and, uh, and people uh, uh, loyal to the, uh, to the, uh, to the uh, royal family, uh, the, uh, the aristocracy, the, the sort of wealthy uh, and powerful people of Judah, uh, and the priesthood, which in some cases fit into both of those uh, categories as well. These are the prominent uh, figures, and and, uh, um, it just kind of wasn't fitting to uh, massacre them and enslave them, so they were brought back in chains to Babylonia and uh, um, uh, uh, put under lock and key for a brief period of time um, until the death of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, who was the uh, uh, emperor of Babylon uh, at the time of the conquest, who, um, uh, after he passed away, his successor had a much more um, uh, lenient policy toward the Jewish captives and, uh, and, and let them uh, um, go from captivity, more or less, but still uh, uh, made them and that community remain in Babylonia. Um, so just to kind of see... Babylonia uh, today is... Uh, Iraq, modern-day Iraq. Uh, Assyria today is more or less modern-day Syria, uh, and Persia, which we'll talk about momentarily, is more or less modern-day Iran. And Turkey, uh, uh, <laughs> Turkey, I don't know what it was at the time. Uh, yeah, um, uh, um, Turkey doesn't really factor into this history so much. But, uh, Except the gates to Babylon are in Turkey. So it could be that the Babylonian Empire extended that far, that far north. Um, you could be right. Um, I don't know enough about the internal history of Babylonia. In the museum, yeah. they've got the gates of Oh, really? The museum in Turkey? In Turkey. Yeah. In, in, in Istanbul? Ankara. In Ankara. Okay. Um, there's, also, there's also Babylonian artifacts in, uh, in the Metropolitan Museum. But, uh, okay. Yeah, closer, right. Uh, if you want to see it. <laughs> What's interesting about it is, uh, and you can see, therefore, uh, you know, what we'll talk about in, in a few moments is the uh, um, development of the, of the Hebrew Bible, uh, which uh, most historians think uh, really took the form that we have it today during the Babylonian uh, captivity and maybe into the Persian period. Uh, and, uh, and so you can see, in looking at some of the Babylonian artifacts, you can really see the influence of that culture on, um, on, the, on, on especially the later parts of the, of the Hebrew Bible. Um, uh, Ezekiel, for example, which um, claims at the beginning of the book of the prophet Ezekiel to uh, have been uh, composed during the Babylonian exile. Ezekiel says that he was among the um, the, the the captives that were taken from uh, from uh, Jerusalem and in, into um, exile in Babylonia, and a lot of his visions very strongly reflect um, the uh, the imagery of the uh, um, gods and goddesses of uh, of Babylonia. So it's just an interesting aside, um, but you can see um, uh, the um, 
Um, look at uh, text number two um, on the second page of the packet that you have. That uh, um, you know uh, the uh, the um, original reflections and stance of the uh, um, uh, captive Judeans in uh, in Babylonia um, uh, reflected the. Um, the the imprisonment um, uh, uh, that they had. So Psalm one thirty seven, a very famous psalm, you know, especially if you're a, a reggae fan, um, is <laughs> uh, by the rivers of Babylon. There we sat down and there we wept when we remembered Zion. Uh, on the willows there we hung up our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs and our tormentors asked for mirth, saying, "Sing us one of the songs of Zion." Right. So this. Psalm, um, it may not have actually been composed uh, um, immediately after the, uh, the Babylonian exile, but uh, reflects a time immediately after the Babylonian exile, right? Um, and, uh, and so we have captors and tormentors, and they made us, you know, uh, 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 you know uh, sat down and weep by the rivers of Babylon. Uh, and how could we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand wither. Some of you may have uh, seen this uh, before. If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand uh, wither. Let my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem's fall, how they said, tear it down, tear it down, down to its foundations. O daughter Babylon, you devastator. Happy shall they be who pay you back what you have done to us. Happy shall they be who take your little ones and dash them against the rock. Uh, yes, right? Uh, they were not very happy about their situation in uh, Babylonia. Um, over time, that, uh, that, that attitude changes. And there, was a, uh, a, a vo- there were voices within the Jewish community that, that called for a, a change of disposition. And I think it reflects the change of uh, atmosphere and status of the Jewish community in Babylon that became um, much more comfortable over a period of time. So you see, uh, look at text number 3, Jeremiah chapter 29. Um, uh, so the prophet Jeremiah sends for a letter from Jerusalem to the remaining uh, elders among the exiles, the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Yechonia uh, and the queen mother and court officials, the, letters, the leaders of Judah and Jerusalem, the artisans and the smiths, had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of uh, Elasa, son of uh, Shaphan, and, and uh, Gemariah, son of Hilkiah, whom King, King Zedekiah of Judah sent to Babylon to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. It said, okay, all the preface, it said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. And they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. By the way, that uh, um, text, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, is one of the reasons why we have uh, the prayer for our country that we recite uh, every Shabbat morning. Right? Uh, it's based on this, uh, uh, on this impulse, on this, interpre- on this passage. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare. Right? So the 
the attitude over time changes to one of, okay, you know, we're, we're here, we might as well make the most of it, right? Uh, uh, we're, we're, uh, the, the treatment became better. So what you ended up having over the course of time that the, uh, that the Judeans are in, uh, in Babylonia is um, the, the, the shift from uh, a community in chains and in exile to um, what we might call today a, a, a simply a diaspora community. Um, and it was really the first such kind of community uh, in, in Jewish history, partially because, as I mentioned toward the end of last week's session, there was no such thing as Jewish history before this period, right? Uh, the term Jewish comes from the term Judite, right? Uh, the people of Judah, the, the Hebrew term for Judah is Yehuda. Hebrew term for Jew is Yehudi, right? You can uh, uh, see the, the parallels there before um, they were... Um, Israelites who lived in Judah, or, or people from the tribe of Judah, um, but never a, a, a national religious identity on its own. But once they are, once the the ten, the northern uh, kingdom is gone, and all there is left of of the Israelite people and Israelite religion are the people of Judah, and they get conquered and taken into uh, Babylonia, their national identity is Judite, right, which becomes Jew. So this is actually really the beginning of, of what you could properly call Jewish history, because there's no such thing really as Jews before this time, which is important, I think, for us living in uh, the diaspora world to, to keep in mind, um, not necessarily for positive or negative, but just as a reality, um, that, uh, that Jewish history in a lot of ways is really born in the diaspora, and not as uh, many people uh, uh, think is... is uh, uh, certainly, the 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 um, our early history is born in the land of Israel. Um, one can make an argument that before that, our history is born in Egypt, right? Uh, so the, that's another uh, similar kind of argument. But uh, but really, um, what you could properly call Jewish history is born not in the land of Israel, but is born in in the diaspora, um, and it and it. Um, I think reflects um, uh, something that many of us experience um, even today. Um, is that uh, in in some ways the diaspora experience is a is a um, is a strengthening experience for the Jewish people? There's a sense of of uh, of, of entrenchment and uh, national solidarity and pride that you get when you are uh, butting up against a, a larger external external culture, when you're a minority in a majority culture, that when you are a majority in your own culture, um, uh, you don't see as much. So we'll see that actually a little bit um, in uh, a little bit later today, ho hoping that we get there, um, in the um, Maccabean, after the Maccabean revolt, where you do have um, uh, Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel, and the outcome of Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel is actually a profound dilution of, uh, of, uh, of, of independent Jewish identity. Um, so it's just, I think, an interesting thing to keep in mind. And, and part of that is uh, that the, the exiles in Babylonia were, remember, the, the leading members of the Judaic community, the ones who were most invested in what it meant to be a, a, a person of Judah, a participant in the culture of Judah, uh, a, a, a practitioner of the religion of Judah. Um, so these are people who are very uh, 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 fiercely loyal uh, and nationalistic and, uh, uh, and uh, uh, connected to that pre-existing culture, right? So uh, they had a very strong vested interest in keeping it up, right, uh, and, and keeping it going among themselves. 
that sort of um, diminishes a little bit something that I think is really revolutionary, though, and something that I think didn't really exist at the time. So this is uh, one of the, um, I think, Jewish ideas. Uh, last year, um, uh, Rabbi Kiefer led a class, that were like the top ten uh, Torah concepts that changed the world. Uh, and I think that, uh, I don't remember, I wasn't in the class, uh, but, uh, but, but if you ask me from my list, this is certainly one of them, uh, that um, the notion uh, in the ancient world usually was that your God was very much tied into a particular location, right? So your God, you know, um, your, the, you see it throughout the Bible, there's you know, Baal Peor, right? Baal Peor, the, the God Baal attached to the place Peor. Uh, and that was very common in the uh, in in the in, in the ancient world, right? Um, uh, uh, you know the the uh, uh, the Greek gods, you know, were were resided on Olympus, right? And it was connected, which meant that if a particular place, a particular temple, was conquered by another group of people, often that meant um, to the to the population that were loyal to that god, um, a um, uh, that that the god him or herself was defeated or repudiated by that conquest, right? Um, which, uh, uh, and so that's, that's one piece of what happened to the northern kingdom, the Israelites living in, in uh, the kingdom of Israel when it was conquered by Assyria, they didn't feel as strongly about uh, the uh, universality of the God of Israel as the people in the south did, uh, and so took the um, experience of being conquered by the Assyrians as evidence that the God of Israel wasn't, if the God of Israel continued to exist, certainly was not the most powerful God, right? There were other gods that were more powerful. The Judites, at least the ones that were in captivity, didn't believe that. They believed um, uh, in, in a revolutionary idea that the God of Israel was actually the God of the whole world, and to varying degrees, uh, believed that that God was the only God of the whole world. Some of them probably still believe that there may have been other gods, but the God of Israel was uh, was chief among them, or the strongest among them. So if you go back to uh, text number uh, one on the front page of this packet, um, <clears throat> you, uh, you, you see the uh, the essence of this theology um, in, uh, in Jeremiah chapters 25 and 27. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, I am going to send for all the tribes of the north, says the Lord, even for King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. My servant, my servant, God says, is the king of Babylon. Even though the king of Babylon doesn't worship the God of Israel, the God of Israel says the king of Babylon is my servant, and I am sending him uh, uh, against this land and its inhabitants and against all these nations around. I will utterly destroy them and make them an object of horror and hissing and an everlasting disgrace. And I will banish them I will banish from them the sound of mirth and the sound of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. By the way, if you've ever been to a Jewish wedding, you might recognize um, uh, the language of that passage, um, which we now use as a way of uh, celebrating uh, uh, the bride and groom. God says, a mark of destruction is that there'll be no more sound of uh, bridegroom and bride. Uh, um, uh, that there will be no more in the hills of, uh, of, of Judah and the, the walls of Jerusalem uh, the sound of mirth and gladness, the sound of a bridegroom and bride. And at Jewish weddings today, we 
take those moments as symbols of, uh, of, of ultimate repair and, and of the hope of restoration. Uh, and so we sing, We will again hear in the, set, in the uh, hills of Judah and the walls of Jerusalem, courtyards of Jerusalem, the sound of mirth and gladness, the sound of bridegroom and bride. That's just an aside, uh, but it comes uh, from, from this passage. So um, the whole land will become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Right? So the, the worldview, the religious worldview of Jeremiah and of other leading figures of Judah at the time was that, um, was that the destruction of Judah and the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, wasn't a repudiation of the God of Israel. In fact, it was a fulfillment of the wishes of the God of Israel. And the God of Israel was orchestrating all of it as a as an act of punishment for the lack of obedience and the lack of uh, servitude of the people of Judah. They weren't loyal enough to the God of Israel. They weren't loyal enough to the temple. Uh, and that's what happened. And that's why we were destroyed. Which is a revolutionary idea that this is not a particular God of a tribal people in the Levant, but is actually the God of the entire world. Right? And the God of the entire world is controlling the king of the most powerful empire in the world. Right? Um, right? And uh, um, uh, right? The Jeremiah 27 uh, goes even further. Give them this charge for their masters. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, this is what you shall say to your masters. It is I who by my great power and my outstretched arm have made the earth with the people and animals that are on the earth. And I give it to whomever I please. Now I have given all these lands into the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, my servant, and I have given him even the wild animals of the field to serve him. All the nations shall serve him and his son and his grandson until the time of his own land comes. Then many nations and great kings shall make him their slave. Right. So, uh, so what, happened to, what happened to Judah is going to ultimately happen to Babylon, and I'm going to cause that too. Right. So um, this was at the very least, how these exiles in Babylonia made sense of what was happening to them. And it brought with them a, uh, a really profoundly novel concept in, in the ancient world, uh, and one that, I think, uh, um, helped sustain that uh, population of exiles while they were in, in exile in Babylonia. That belief that the religion of Israel was not yet done, that the people of Israel were not yet over, um, was uh, helped lead to the crafting of what we now call the Bible, the Tanakh. Um, and uh, so it's not particularly um, heretical to say that the, uh, that the whole compilation of books that we now call the the Bible, for the most part, was put together, was organized and arranged at that time. So if you want to close your ears at just that, you can. Um, but I'll say that, uh, that the, the picture of, uh, of, of the Torah being uh, dropped from the sky at, uh, at, at Mount Sinai um, is, uh, um, uh, is a challenging one historically. And uh, it's a challenging one historically for a number of reasons. Um, the first, and I recognize that uh, um, someone last week uh, mentioned the, the adage that um, uh, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence, and there's truth to that. Um, but we do not have a, um, a, a complete copy 
of what we now uh, uh, see as the Torah, um, earlier than the medieval period. I think the oldest one we have is the 11th century or something like that. Um, what we do have are fragments of some biblical material dating earlier than that, the most comprehensive of which are what are known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, which date uh, to the Second Temple period, which we're not going, which is not the time period we're talking about today, is much later than the time period we're talking about today, a few centuries later. Um, uh, so, uh, and that in itself is not a, uh, a complete Bible. It has uh, most of uh, what we find in, in, in our Bible, but with uh, some things missing, some things added, and, uh, and, and a good deal of variation. Um, what it suggests is that, uh, that what we now call the Torah was pieced together over time, um, in part by an oral tradition, um, uh, that, uh, that made those texts and those stories and those laws constantly evolving, uh, and, uh, and in part by a written tradition. Right? So um, uh, on the outline last week, I, I listed uh, what, uh, during that timeline of the, the earlier period of Jewish history, the likely composition dates for different narrative strands, different uh, linguistic strands within the Bible, which is, for the most part, uh, um, what, uh, uh, what biblical scholars uh, um, uh, think about the composition of the Bible was that there were basically four or five distinct literary traditions, uh, some older than others, that uh, form the core of the biblical text. Um, there was a narrative uh, a tradition uh, known as E, um, they didn't probably call themselves E, but uh, they're called E because, um, because anybody know why? Elohistic. Good, Elohistic, good. So this is, if you were to go through the Bible, and uh, what's interesting about it, if you, for us who, uh, who may or may not have very sensitive eyes to, uh, to, to Hebrew language, um, the, the Bible looks like a, a unity, and in some cases that's a, a tribute to the people uh, living in the Babylonian exile during this time who, who put it together. They wanted to make it look like a, a, a unity, but if you were to really be sensitive to it, you would see that there were very, there are very distinctive literary patterns uh, in, in the text, and there's also um, a, a doubling of some stories inexplicably. Um, not only that there is a, you know, the same story might be told in numbers as in Deuteronomy, and then you can explain that, well, Moses is retelling the story, okay, but, but sometimes in, say, Genesis, the same story is told twice, but in different ways. So the, the most famous of them is the creation of humanity, which is told in chapter one of Genesis, different from chapter two of Genesis. Um, so that's another uh, reason uh, for uh, thinking that there might be multiple authors uh, represented in the Torah. Um, but if you were to look at the language very sensitively, you would see very distinctive literary patterns. It would be as if, right, uh, uh, you had a, a, a composite work written of chunks of Shakespeare, Chaucer, Faulkner, and Steinbeck, right? They're all writing in English, but they all have very distinct voices and distinct styles. Um, so, uh, so that is a, more or less what you find in the Bible if you're very sensitive to these things. Um, and so the Eloist is, uh, uh, and they also have different uh, points of view and different theology and things like that. So the Eloist um, uh, is noted uh, is probably the earliest kernel of, uh, of of text in the 
in the Bible. There are other pieces that are not necessarily Eloistic texts that are also early pieces, um, uh, but, uh, you know, like the priestly blessing, for example, is a very old um, uh, piece of text in the Bible, and we uh, it certainly came from, uh, um, well, let me actually rephrase that. It may or may not be a priestly narrative and may be reappropriated in the Bible as a priestly narrative, but anyway, um, the Eloistic is is of the more complete literary strands is is probably the oldest, um, and uh, most likely was composed in the northern part of the Kingdom of Israel um, in the uh, um, in the eighth century, um, and you know that the. the uh, Eloist, um, um, if you were to strip down the layers of the Torah, the Eloist, um, first of all, is called that because likes to refer to God not by the name Yahweh, but by the name Elohim. Um, the, um, uh, not exclusively, but, uh, but for the most part. Um, the Eloist, for example, has a very different uh, perspective on the exodus from Egypt than later authors do. Uh, according to the Eloist, the, uh, the, the exodus was a very small group of slaves um, after a, a generation or two following the death of Joseph. Um, and uh, there were three plagues, not ten. Um, uh, so that's the Eloistic strand. Um, the next level is... J or the or the Yahwist. What do you think is the distinguishing feature of the Yahwists? Yeah. Right, good. They like the name Yudhe Vavhe for God, um, and they tell a lot of the same stories as the uh, as the Elois. One other way that you can tell the difference between some of these is that uh, um, a story that uh, gives prominence and preference to uh, someone from uh, from the northern kingdom um, is probably not the same author who uh, gives prominence and preference to uh, to a figure from from the south right so um, it becomes more of a uh, becomes more apparent uh, in let's say um, the the next level which is the deuteronomist um, the Deuteronomist was uh, um, uh, sometime around the king, reign of King Josiah, um, uh, uh, um, and the Deuteronomist, as you might imagine, uh, people believe is mainly responsible for the book of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy good, uh, probably Joshua as well, and probably some other uh, texts in, in the, uh, uh, throughout the, the biblical narrative. Um, and the, the Deuteronomist, uh, um, because, it was, uh, because it's uh, composed in the South by people who um, were closely connected to the, the, um, the, the monarchy in, in Judah and in Jerusalem, um, likes heroes from Judah. Right? And, uh, and prioritizes them. But then you have uh, another layer that uh, is uh, a little bit later called the priestly layer. Um, and uh, the priestly layer is responsible, among other things, primarily for the book of Leviticus, which makes sense. Um, there are, there, there's now, uh, you know, so the original theory of, uh, of um, this is called the documentary hypothesis, that there were different documents that made up the, the Bible. Some of you may have uh, heard this before. Um, now there are theories in fashion uh, called the supplementary hypothesis, which I think are actually pretty compelling theories. The supplementary hypothesis is that there were more uh, texts uh, 
uh, in the Bible than just these four. They don't account for everything. So that in addition to the priestly text, uh, there is um, uh, there's uh, what's called the the uh, holiness code. <coughs> So there's the H text, uh, and um, uh, let's see, what's another one? They they like the uh, the the arc code or the arc uh, uh, author. So the any time you see a narrative about the arc, it's actually a, potentially a different author than the uh, than than the priests. Um, but what's what's really important for our purposes, uh, and uh, and and if you were a sensitive um, linguist. Um, you see that there is R, the redactor, right? Um, and, you know, the supplementary hypothesis thinks that there may be R1 and R2. Who knows? Um, now, you have to remember, like, no one was trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes uh, with, with this. Um, the... In the ancient world, people didn't relate to history the same way we do. So they didn't think that they were composing a, a, a factual history of the Jewish people, and they didn't. They weren't trying to uh, claim that uh, that they were making these stories up, and they didn't try to claim that they were just uh, passing on an unbroken tradition. Um, the uh, we live in a world where, where uh, one author sits down or two authors sit down and they write a book together and it's published and bound and that's the book and their name is on it. And if they didn't write the book, then their name shouldn't be on it, right? Or, and it, or if they put it in somebody else's name, okay, well, that's a pseudonym or they're lying about it or something like that. And, and if you, you know, have that book, but then you add in pages at the end or you cross it out and change it around or whatever, you could get sued for, uh, for copyright or... Uh, or, or whatever. Right? That's not the way literature worked in the, in the ancient world. It was much more of a fluid culture. Um, in part, you can see that from, uh, from the way we compose, the way we write down our Torah scrolls now. Right? They're written uh, um, without punctuation. They're written in, in a scroll fashion, which means that I can cut, uh, cut out a, a, a portion of the, of the text and, and then add in another piece into that scroll or add something to the end. Um, and one would never know necessarily the difference, and that's not, they weren't trying to deceive anybody by doing it, that's just the way um, text worked at the time uh, before there was a printing press. Um, and so the, uh, so the uh, and it was especially important for the community of exiles in Babylonia um, to have a cohesive set of their, um, of their people's traditions and laws and practices in one place that they could turn to that uh, that 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 could um, that could serve the needs of the entire community that could in some ways take the place um, of a central religious center like the temple in Jerusalem um, they needed some of these things in ways that they didn't when uh, they were living uh, under their own rule in uh, in Jerusalem um, We'll see this again uh, next week in uh, when we talk about the rabbinic period um, uh, in in the development of, uh, of of rabbinic literature, midrash, mishnah, talmud, um, which in some ways was an attempt to serve the same kind of need, right? In a in a period of cataclysm and exile, a group of people said the only way we're going to keep Jews together is by writing the stuff down that we were avoiding writing down for a long time. We just didn't think to write down because why did we need to? 
right? So the exiles in, in Babylonia, especially the, the priests who were there, which were the literate class in, in, uh, in that community, which is why the redactor is probably a, a priest um, or at least a, a, a Levite, um, and, uh, and that's why the gloss of the Torah, um, um, there's, a, there's a, I guess what you call a, a distinctly priestly sort of veneer to the Torah, which, which puts it all together uniformly and nicely. It's also why uh, the Torah begins with a priestly text, which is the, uh, the opening chapter of Genesis, um, uh, is, uh, according to scholars, um, very much in keeping with a, with, a, with a classic example of what a priestly text looks like because it is very orderly and uniform and concerned with the number seven um, and, uh, um, and uh, serves um, allegorical um, parallels to the, uh, to, the, to the temple and to the cult in Jerusalem. Um, uh, so, uh, so the redactors were probably priests too, and, and that's who... Uh, compiled this stuff uh, in, in, uh, in, during exile in Babylonia. Another reason that we think this is that eventually the, um, the, uh, the Babylonian exiles uh, were uh, able to return to Jerusalem. So in uh, 530... Uh, what, what date did I put it on here? 530... Sorry. Um... um yeah, I messed that up. So in 538, uh, Cyrus didn't conquer Babylonia in 586. In 530, I just put it in the wrong box. In 538, uh, Cyrus um, of Persia conquers Babylonia. Um, and uh, as was the case for a lot of the um, uh, uh, peoples that uh, he conquered, he had a, a, a fairly um, tolerant position. Uh, and so allowed the, uh, the Judean exiles to return to Jerusalem if they wanted to. Some didn't. Some were perfectly content and happy to stay in uh, Babylonia, which is why um, it's, it's in some ways helpful to think of it not really as an exile anymore, but as the diaspora. And you can see um, that community reflected, um, even though it may not be a historically factual account, in the story of Purim. In the story of Purim, it's talking about the Jews of Persia who are still there, and they have a whole community, and they're throughout the Persian Empire, right? And and, and that community was probably related to this community that uh, that that uh, had originally. In fact, in the story of Purim, um, uh, Mordechai is identified as the child or the grandchild of uh, the original exiles from Jerusalem, um, which calls into question the composition date of the story of Purim, and it's a whole kind of mess, because um, if you see on your uh, timeline, I have uh, 465 to 424, Artaxerxes I, um, which uh, uh, many scholars wonder if that's what the story of Purim meant by Ahasuerus. Uh, uh, if that's the case, then it seems very unlikely that Mordechai could have been the child of, uh, uh, and I believe it's child, if I'm not mistaken. I don't have a, a full Bible with me here. But I uh, believe that Mordechai is identified as a child um, of, of the original um, exiles in Babylon, which made him very old at the time of the story of Purim. Um, so, but in any event. Um, in 538, Cyrus conquers Babylonia, lets the, uh, the Jews, if they want, go back to uh uh, Jerusalem, uh, and restore the community there. Um, uh, the first wave of that uh, um, emigration was was led by um, a guy named 
Sheshbazar, uh, who uh, was the son of um, Yehoiachin, who was uh, a, an early king that was uh, um, exiled to Babylonia at the beginning of the Babylonian siege. Um, so we're, and, by the, and that goes to show you that we're all really only talking about a period of 30 or so years uh, here, 28 years, um, bet- no, excuse me, 30. Uh, what's 586 minus 538? Uh, uh, about uh, um, 40 years. Uh, 50 years. Gosh. Okay, I've been talking for a long time. Um, about 50 years uh, between uh, the uh, the exile and uh, the restorations. The first wave goes with um, Sheish Bazar, who's a member of that royal family. Um, some don't go. Uh, in the second wave uh, um, was led by a man named Zerubbabel, uh, and uh, during that wave um, is the uh, beginning of rebuilding the temple. Um, so the second temple starts that day, although the image that we often see of the second temple, which is this glorious, beautiful, marble, gold building, um, was, uh, was uh, really a, uh, an accomplishment of, uh, of, uh, of Roman rule, of, of Herod, and we'll talk more about that next time. <coughs> Um, and this was probably a little bit more uh, modest, shall we say, of uh, of sort of poor emigrants who, uh, um, you know, uh, the image in, in Ezra and Nehemiah, which is where most of these stories are accounted, um, of uh, of people who really didn't have much to uh, eat or or, uh, uh, or 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 a lot of wealth except for what they uh, carried with them, were sort of building with building with one hand and holding a spear in the other to fight off uh, uh, people who were um, constantly threatening their security, which were images that uh, the early Zionists appropriated uh, for uh, um, uh, for the, the task of rebuilding the land of Israel during the um, 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, but uh, so... I was trying to connect the waves of immigration back to uh, Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the temple, with the with the writing of the Torah, and uh, and so the third and fourth waves were led by two figures, Nehemiah and Ezra. I just mentioned them because they're two books of the Bible named after them, and uh, those books, you know, are obviously written from a particular uh, point of view, uh, but have a very high degree of historical accuracy to them. Most people think, um, and uh, and so. Um, uh, I had another text I wanted to show you. Um, so before we talk about that, let's just uh, talk a little bit more about uh, what uh, uh, what it meant to be Jewish in the Babylonian exile. Um, so one of the other innovations of the Jewish community of that time, um, in addition to uh, compiling the Torah and most of what we now call the Tanakh, um, was, uh, um, was the institution of, of synagogues, and, uh, and prayer. Right? So up until that time, the primary mode of, of Jewish religious expression was animal sacrifice that could only happen in one place um, and uh, controlled by uh, one group of people, right? namely the, the temple in Jerusalem and the priesthood. Um, in the absence of the temple and priesthood, um, uh, uh, most people think that this is the, this is the first instance of, uh, of, of synagogues and of verbal prayer. Um, which continued uh, uh, even after the Second Temple was rebuilt uh, to be at least a simultaneous mode of uh, Jewish gathering and worship. Um, so one of the reasons we think that that it was instituted during that time is that there are several accounts in the Talmud and other rabbinic literature of a group called uh, the Anshe Knesset Hagadola, the men of the great synagogue or the men of the great assembly, 
and no one is really sure exactly who those people are, but there are some hints that they were a, uh, a leading council of, uh, of Jews during the Babylonian and, and, and early Persian period. Um, and so if you see the, the Talmud text number four, the Babylonian Talmud is like Babylonian, not in this period. The Babylonian Talmud is much, much later. Uh, but, uh, uh, and it was written not, I mean, it, they, the Jews still called it Babylonia, but I don't think it really was called by that uh, name by anybody else at the time. But anyway, the men of the great synagogue established for Israel blessings and prayers and sanctifications in Havdalot. Um, so most people think that that means that uh, that the the core of our prayer service that we still have today was instituted by people at this period. Uh, um, the uh, people interpret that usually as the Amida that we recite, right? So probably at least began to take its shape during this time. Um, a lot of the blessings we have for food and and things like that began to take its shape during that time. Sanctifications um, in in the Hebrew is kedushot, um, which could mean. Uh, one or several things. Um, it, it could mean uh, like the Friday night Kiddush, right? Uh, uh, Kiddush for holidays, sanctifying the day for holidays. It could mean uh, um, uh, Kedusha, right? So the, the part of the Amida where we uh, um, uh, stand and exclaim God's uh, um, uh, uh, sanctity. Um, and it could mean, uh, um, probably doesn't mean Kaddishes, which, were, which are later Hebrew, but uh, it could mean any number of things. Um, and uh, Havdalah, right? Uh, the, the prayer to separate uh, Shabbat from, uh, from the rest of the week. And according to Encyclopedia Judaica, I, just a quote from there, Ezra was apparently regarded by the rabbis as leader of the great assembly. So this is late Babylonian, uh, early Persian period um, where this is taking place. The Targum to Song of Songs uh, further designates Ezra, Zerubbabel, uh, Yeshua, Nehemiah, Mordechai, Mordechai of Purim fame, and uh, Bilshan as members of this assembly. Okay, so that's what most people think, is that, um, that uh, uh, at this time is when synagogues became a, a, a primary locus of Jewish communal gathering and, and worship that, uh, that ended up supplementing and then eventually supplanting the temple in Jerusalem, um, which, and it's what we still uh, have today, like it or not. Um, so, <laughs> so Yochanan ben Zakkai is much later. Yochanan ben Zakkai is uh, during the Roman period. Um, so a number, let's see, we're talking about the uh, uh, five... 530s, 520s, and Yochanan ben Zakkai was around the time of the destruction of the temple, which is 70 CE, so about 500 years later, five, maybe 600 years later. The Mishnah, which was written by Yochanan ben Zakkai's students, um, uh, sees Yochanan ben Zakkai as a, a, a direct line from the men of the Great Assembly, um, which have a direct line to the prophets of Israel, which have a direct line to Moses and Mount Sinai. Right? So the opening uh, text of uh, Pirkei Avot draws a direct line to each of these things. And the only one that scholars have no idea who it's talking about are the Anshe Knesset Gadola, but they think that it's talking about people who were during this time. Um, all right, it's clear we're not going to get to uh, to the Greeks, but that's fine. Um, uh, so, but I, but I do want to show this. So when the when the uh, exiles come back from Babylonia, um, Nehemiah, who was uh, the earlier of the two leaders between Ezra, Nehemiah and Ezra, um, uh, was trying to establish a very strong uh, uh, political autonomy and, and and national identity for the for the Jewish community there. Uh, and, uh, and, and Ezra very c- 
consciously and and, uh, um, and explicitly tries to institute uh, the Torah as law of the land. But what's interesting about it, if you look at the uh, uh, if you look at the narrative in in Nehemiah, is that it seems like the idea of the Torah being law of the land um, was in some ways uh, a profoundly new and radical concept to the people of the times. So look at Nehemiah chapter eight. Some of you have heard me talk about this text before. Go through it pretty fast, uh, just in the interest of time. But all the people gathered as one person in the square, square before the water gate. They told Ezra the scribe, by the way, he's known as Ezra the scribe, probably not uh, um, uh, coincidentally. Um, he, that epithet, the scribe, is probably because he was, uh, he was known, uh, first and foremost, for being someone who, um, who, not only that he was a scribe generally, but was the scribe. Who uh, who people attributed to actually compiling and writing, and actually the Talmud reflects that uh, possibility. Um, so there are uh, even uh, those to the right of us on the um, theological spectrum who uh, question the mosaic authorship of the entirety of the Torah and say that there were pieces of it that have uh, that that pedigree, uh, but it was all put together by Ezra later on. Um, so Ezra the scribe uh, brought the book of uh, the Torah of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly. He was also a priest. He was a scribe and a priest, right? You can see before. The priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. Anybody know what the first day of the seventh month is, besides Sarkon? <laughs> Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah, good. It's what we would call today Rosh Hashanah. Then it was the seventh, according to the Torah, it's the seventh month, because the first month is Nisan, uh, which is where Passover is. So the seventh month is uh, is Tishrei, and that's Rosh Hashanah. Look, you can see that even then it was not called Rosh Hashanah yet, which is reflected in the Torah, as that term Rosh Hashanah doesn't exist yet. Uh, he read from it facing the square before the water gates from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. Um, just... As an aside, um, uh, this is a, um, I think, a really important text for those of us who are passionate about egalitarianism um, and uh, and see um, uh, and see it having a very ancient pedigree in our tradition. Um, this is a good piece of evidence for that. That uh, when Ezra goes to bring the Torah to the people, the men and women and children are all standing together. Um, and when we unearth ancient synagogues. Um, uh, it, it, it appears that uh, a lot of the ancient synagogues did not have separation between men and women. Either. It was yeah. the Orthodox, which was a newer That's right. Uh, they would not make that argument, but I would make that argument, right? Uh, that, uh, that the, that the uh, uh, separation, at least, of men and women in worship is, uh, is, a, more, is a newer innovation. Um, so they, uh, so all, everyone who understood gathered in the ears of the people were attentive to the book of the Torah. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. I cut out, uh, by the way, you see ellipses and you're like, what did he cut out? I cut out the, the names of a whole bunch of, uh, of dignitaries with uh, very Persian-sounding names that, uh, that were sitting up there with him. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, the Levites helped the people. There are other names there. Uh, the Levites helped the people understand the Torah while the people remained in their places, right? So the, the notion that the Levites had to help people understand the Torah gives a good indication that this was something new to them, right? Um, 
so they read from the book, from the Torah of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest, and the scribe, and the Levites, who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the Torah. Why did they weep when they heard, hear, heard the words of the Torah? Why do you think they wept when they heard the words of the Torah? Revelation. Revelation, good. So, possibly because this is so beautiful and magical and wonderful, and this is the first time we're hearing this. What's another possibility? Well, if they hadn't heard it before, it would be astounding to them. Good. What about it would be astounding? I think it's the Word of God. Okay, good. What else? How about when you hear the words of the Torah... And it has all these laws and practices and, 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 and things you never heard of before, which means that if, you, that, that if you're hearing it as the Word of God, you say, oh my gosh, I've been eating meat and milk this whole time, <laughs> right? And they're crying because of it. And they say, don't mourn, don't cry, it's okay, right? Um, uh, uh, go your way, right? Uh, eat fat foods and drink sweet beverages and send portions uh, of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is, I love that piece, that your celebration is incomplete unless you uh, send uh, gifts to those who right, share with others. Um, and, and all the people went their way to eat and drink and send portions to make great, great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. On the second day, the heads of the ancestral houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to describe Ezra to study the words of the law. And they found it written in the law, which the Lord had commanded to, by Moses, that the people of Israel should live in booths during the festival of the seventh month. In other words, it looks like this is the first time they're really getting together to study this thing closely, and they say, oh my gosh, in a few days we're supposed to have Sukkot up, right? And they had no idea. Um, uh, and that they should uh, 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 publish and proclaim in all their towns and in Jerusalem as follows, go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths. Now, what's interesting about that is that in the Torah's account that we have now, none of those things are required to actually make the Sukkot, the booths. Some of those things, but not all of those things, are required for the what we now call lulav and etrog. Uh, but, uh, but it adds in things like olive branches and, uh, and wild olive and, and other things, which are not part of lulav and etrog. Um, right? So this shows that, uh, uh, or at least is a piece of evidence, that shows that, uh, that, that uh, even at this point, um, the uh, the Torah as we have it today was still in a bit of uh, flux. But what's also interesting is that they went from Rosh Hashanah to Sukkot. What important holiday is usually in between Rosh Hashanah and Sukkot? Yeah. Yom Kippur, good. They don't seem to make any notice or acknowledgement of Yom Kippur, right? Which, uh, um, so I think that, uh, that, that this should show you that, uh, um, that the, the Torah was... Uh, brought together and was utilized as a way of, of strengthening national religious identity in a moment where um, religion really became bound up in national identity in a way that it wasn't before, um, that the Torah was really introduced for the first time to uh, most of the people at this time, but it was still even then in a little bit of flux, right? It's not yet in the form that we have it today. Um, so I guess we will stop there just to say that um, the next period that we that we're, that we're going to talk about um, is uh, is the Greek period, the, which includes, of course, the story of Hanukkah. Between the period that we were just talking about, which is the period of uh, the Restoration and the Persian period, um, to uh, uh, Alexander the Great, which is a period of roughly of two centuries, um, it's it's 
uh, most historians see it as sort of like a dark age. We don't really know a lot of what happened um, in Jewish history at that time, um, which may be a good thing, right? No news is good news, which means that people were relatively settled in, in, in Judah. The Jewish community was relatively settled uh, in Persia. There were Jewish communities elsewhere, and things probably, that means for the most part, were roughly smooth sailing for them at that time. Um, but the great drama really picks up in 330 BCE when uh, Alexander the Great conquers the Persian Empire and thereby conquers uh, 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 Jerusalem and the province of uh, uh, Judah as well, uh, and uh, uh, bringing the Jewish people for the first time into uh, um, a direct relationship and direct connection um, with uh, what you might call the Western world, um, and, uh, and, and uh, in particular uh, the Greek world and Greek culture. So next week, we will talk about that. Yes. Since Yom Kippur is not mentioned, does that mean it was not yet celebrated? It was, not, it was unknown? Again, um, helpfully, that, that adage, you know, the, the absence of evidence is not the evidence of absence. Um, uh, so I, I don't know the answer to the question. It is a good piece of evidence to me that, uh, that, that people didn't really know it all that well or at least celebrate it, uh, um, or that it was... Um, Primarily, early on, uh, a ritual associated very closely with the temple and wasn't a public observance. Um, so most of the, what the Torah talks about for Yom Kippur is the ritual of the high priest in the, in, in the temple. Um, and so at, at this time, I'm not sure if they had totally reinstituted the temple yet in the temple service, so it could be that they still had Yom Kippur, but it wasn't something that the public would have observed. But that's just speculation. <laughs>